0: Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.
1: Hello and welcome to News from the Torah. This is Leah Roni Today is May 18, 2022, and the 17th day of the month of Iyar. Today is the 32nd day of the counting of the Omer, which means tonight. Is the holiday of the Lagba Omer, and this week we're reading the Torah portion of Bechukotai. Lagba Omer is a very special holiday when we celebrate the passing, ironically, of the sage Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, one of the greatest sages of the Jewish people. Why in the world would anybody celebrate the death of its greatest sages? This is one of the questions we're going to address today. Why do the Jewish people mark the passing of the sages? This day is also connected with the memory of another great sage, Rabbi Akiva. And we will talk about him, what is so special about Rabbi Akiva, and how this person who started learning at the age of 40 became another great sage of the Jewish people. Actually, just a couple of weeks ago, I met a person who came from Ukraine and he told me how eager he is to learn more about Judaism and about the Torah. But he said, I'm 40 years old. I don't even know how to read Hebrew. And I told him, oh, that's not a problem. Just think about Rabbi Akiva. He was 40 years old when he started to learn how to read and that did not get in the way of him becoming one of the greatest sages of the Jewish people. We will also talk about The Lagba Omar celebration in Miron, which last year, unfortunately, ended in a tragedy. But we will talk about the celebration. What is the cause of the celebration? What brings hundreds of thousands of people to the small town of Miron? And of course, we will talk about last year's tragedy. Last year, the celebration ended with 45 people dead in a crush. A horrible, horrible tragedy And we would like to talk about the natural consequences that could have led to this outcome. This week's Torah portion, Beho is all about the natural consequences of our action. And obviously, it's especially on this week that we have to think about the kind of behaviors that we're all responsible for that could have led to the greatest national tragedy, civil national tragedy, of israel today so all of this on today's show please stay put i will see you right after these messages
0: israel is located in one of those volatile areas in the world israel is an island of stability in a sea of war and unrest In the midst of this turmoil, Israel stands out as a beacon of order and human progress. Each week we update you on what's happening in this, the Jewish state, a true light unto the nations. This is Jay Shapiro. Join me every Thursday on Israel News Talk Radio.
1: and welcome back. So as we said, this week is a very special time because it is leading up to Lagba Omer, the 33rd day of the period of the counting of the Omer. This was supposed to be a festive time when we're counting down days towards receiving the Torah on Shavuot. Yet after the destruction of the temple, it became a tragic time. After the Romans destroyed the Holy Temple in the year 72 of the Common Era, they destroyed most of Jewish life in Judea. Yet 50 years after the destruction of the Temple, the Jewish people revolted in what is known as the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. The ideologue of that rebellion was none other than Rabbi Akiva, arguably the greatest sage of Jewish history. Rabbi Akiva has a very modest beginning. He came from a very simple family and was an illiterate shepherd until he was 40 years old. However, he was noticed by the daughter of his boss, Kalba Savoah. Savo was one of the richest people of Jerusalem, and he employed Akiva as a shepherd of his flock. Kalba Savur's daughter, Rachel, who was one of the most beautiful and educated women of Jerusalem, noticed this simple shepherd, and she had the ability to see in him something special, something that nobody else could see. Rabbi Akiva testified later on that at the time when he was a shepherd, he was illiterate, he had such hatred for Torah colors because they saw themselves as holier and more special than the rest of the Jewish folk. So he really hated Torah scholars, yet Rachel could see through the veneer and saw special qualities and sterling character Rabbi Akiva. So she made a deal with him. She asked him if he would be willing to go and learn Torah, and in that case she would marry him. And of course, he jumped at the opportunity. But her father disavowed the couple, and they were forced to live in very, 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 very poor conditions. Rabbi Akiva went out to learn Torah when his youngest son was five. The father and the son, the five-year-old and the 40-year-old, went to school together to study A, B, C, the alphabet, to study how to read. And Rabbi Akiva started learning at the age of 40, from the very, very beginning, literally from the ABCs, until over the period of 40 years, he became the greatest sage of the Jewish people. So much so that the Talmud says that when Moses saw Rabbi Akiva in a prophecy, he said, you have such a great person, why do you need me to give the Torah? Rabbi Akiva should be the one to give the Torah. Rabbi Akiva not only became the greatest sage, but he had 12,000 couples of students, 24,000 students who were his followers. And as the Jewish people prepared to revolt against the Romans under the military leadership of the Bar Kochva, Rabbi Akiva gave the ideological support for this revolt. And all of his students engaged in the fighting with Bar Kokhba against the Romans, however, all of these twenty-four thousand students died between Passover and the thirty-third day of the counting of Omer. Twenty-four thousand people died during the span of one month. It is it is like having seven hundred funerals every single day and obviously each one of those students had a wife and children and parents the Talmud says that they died in a pandemic of what's called ascara. it's a breathing disease but there are other suggestions that it is possible that they died in the fighting against the Romans at any rate Rabbi Kiva lost all of his students in one month consider it head of a huge movement with hundreds of thousands of followers, is left bereft with no students and no followers at all in one month. And what is so amazing about Rabbi Akiva is not that he was just a great scholar and not just a great sage, but what is so amazing is that Talmud says that after 24,000 of his students passed away, He got up from his morning, and he went and found five new students. And those five new students were the ones who made sure that the Torah was preserved and passed it on to the future generations. Now we can ask, what happened? Why did such a tragedy befall Rabbi Akiva? Why did all of his students die? And the Talmud says that his students passed away, because they would not show proper respect to each other. Now, this sounds to be a very wondrous statement, because Rabbi Akiva is the one who said in this Talmud that loving a fellow Jew is the greatest, most central principle of the Torah. So, if loving a fellow Jew is the central principle of the Torah, how is it possible that his students would not show proper respect to each other? And what does even proper respect mean? So proper respect really means empathy. It means hearing and understanding the position of your fellow person, hearing them out, giving them a chance to express themselves. And instead of thinking, okay, what am I going to answer back to them? Really hearing them out, asking them why they think, what they think, understanding their position And once you understand their position, you can also share your position. And then you can have dialogue, and maybe you'll reach some kind of a compromise. Maybe you'll reach some kind of a third statement. Or maybe you will be able to explain to each other and convince each other. But one way or the other, a central principle here is hearing the other person out. And this is what his students could not do. They could not give space for a different position. They thought that only they were right. And this kind of Torah does not have continuity. All of Torah is built on dialogue and the ability to hear different concepts and different explanations and then arrive at the truth. Because when we cannot hear each other, We cannot arrive at truth. We're so concerned about our own ego and about our own position that we don't give place to other people in other positions. And ironically, it was Rachel, Rabbi Akiva's wife, who was able to see beyond the veneer and see the internal truth of the person. And this is something that her husband was not able to pass to his first set of 24,000 students. Maybe because during those 24 years when he was still learning Torah, they were separated. The Talmud says that Rabbi Akiva, after he learned how to read, left with the permission and the blessing of his wife for 12 years to learn in yeshiva. And after 12 years, he came back and he heard her say, I would be willing to let him go for another 12 years. So he turned around and went off for another 12 years, and after 24 years, when he's a great sage, Rachel comes to him, and his students are about to push away this woman, who is trying to make her way to their great leader, and Rabbi Akiva says, leave her alone, everything that I have, and everything that you have, everything that we have achieved, all belongs to her. And this is when a great reconciliation happens between Rabbi Akiva and his father-in-law, Kalba Savua. But because he was separated from his wife and because he was separated from this source of the ability to see beyond the veneer, his first set of students had a tour that was unsustainable. So he went out, like we said, and found five new students. Just consider it. It is As if a leader of a great movement, a person who has to fill a stadium to contain all of his students, now goes to teach a group of people who can sit around a small table, five students, but those five students made sure that the Torah was preserved, and one of those students was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar. And the founder of the Kabbalistic tradition. Obviously, he had not found it, he just wrote down the teachings that have been passed on for generations, starting from Moses. But he is the person who learned the Zohar and who wrote it down, and we'll talk about him a little bit after the break. The story of Rabbi Akiva and his students is especially relevant to us this year after we experienced a big pandemic, and in many parts of the world, this pandemic is still raging. And the most important lesson here is that there is always a way to go back and start anew. It is mind-boggling how Rabbi Akiva could get up from his tragedy and start from scratch. And how often do we, when we have a setback, say, oh, there's no use. There's no point. I tried it and it doesn't work. And instead of picking ourselves up and going forward, we get stuck in our failure there's a beautiful verse in the book of proverbs mishli that says a righteous person falls down seven times and he gets up and rabbi hutner a famous rabbi from the past century said that this is not a consolation the point is not to tell us that even righteous people fall and get up. This is the method. The way to become righteous is to fall and get up and fall and get up and fall and get up. Fail and get up time and time again. And only through failure we can learn. And this is the only way to attain anything. This is the greatest lesson of Jewish leadership we can learn from Rabbi Akiva. Fall and get up. More about this right after the break
0: the tamar yona show
1: tamar she's sassy
0: she's smart she's funny but she's also a real jewish mother Hi, everybody. I'm Tamar Yonah. And yes, I can be all of those things. But at Israel News Talk Radio, I'm here to bring you the news stories and guests that you may not hear anywhere else. Join me live on air Sundays, Mondays and Tuesdays for the most unique and bold talk radio in Israel. The Tamar Yona Show.
1: Welcome back. So in the previous segment, we talked about Rabbi Akiva, the greatest sage of all times. And in this segment, we would like to talk about a different personality, also connected to this special day of the 33rd day of the Omer, Lagba Omer, and that is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is buried in the town of Miron, right outside of Tzfat, in Galilee in northern Israel. And every year for his Day of Passing, Lagba Ormer, between two hundred fifty and 500,000 people gather, gather to celebrate this day. Now, why do we celebrate the Day of the Passing of a Sage? It is said that on the Day of His Passing, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai revealed exalted secrets of the Torah. The celebrations are marked with the lighting of huge bonfires to signify the brilliance of the light of the Zohar. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's book is called the Zohar, which literally means illumination or brilliance. And it also signifies the lighting of bonfires that the Bar Kochva soldiers would light to see each other and to pass messages. The other Custom that is uh, marked at the celebrations, Lagba Omer is the cutting of hair for young Jewish boys. Jewish families usually leave their boys' hair out long until the age of three, and on Lagba Omer, three-year-olds get their first haircut. And when the hair is cut, they pay out the side locks are left on. So this is another custom that is marked on Lagba Omer. And if you go online on YouTube and Type in Lagba Omer Miron, you can see some of these celebrations with lots of singing and dancing and bonfires. It's just a very lively event. Imagine. Unfortunately, last year the celebrations ended with a tragedy as 45 people died in a crush due to poor safety conditions at the site. And we hope that after much work, this year's celebration will be... Beautiful and safe for everybody after a lot of work that the Israeli authorities have done to make the site safer. This celebration begs a question What is so special about Bishubin Bar Yochai? And the seminal story about him in the Talmud is actually about a discussion that he had with two of his colleagues other students of Rabbi Akiva. So if you remember, we said that Rabbi Akiva's first set of 24,000 students passed away because they would not hear each other out and not give proper respect to each other's opinions. But here's another story about a disagreement among three sages. So the Talmud says in the Tractate of Shabbat that three sages, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yosei, and Rabbi Shimon sat and had a discussion, and there was a fourth person there called Yehuda. So they discussed Romans, how Romans behaved, and what Romans did. Now you have to remember, this is about 10 years after the Romans violently put out the Jewish revolt and basically decimated Judea. At the time, Romans had the same status as Nazis they were cruel and they were anti Semitic. And in this discussion, Rabbi Yudas says, we have to give due to the amazing actions of the Romans. They established markets, they built bridges, they built bathhouses. They're really doing things to rebuild this country, so we have to give them their due. And Rabbi Yossi didn't say anything. He was conflicted. Rabbi Shimon got very angry and he said, no, everything that they do, they do for themselves. They build markets to uh, create immorality, they build bathhouses for themselves, and they build bridges so they can collect taxes. The fourth person who was there shared this conversation with somebody, who shared this with somebody else, and in the end, the emperor heard about it. Serebi Yuda, who had good things to say about the Romans, was promoted, and he was nominated to be the first person to speak at every public gathering. Rabbi Yose, who didn't say anything, was sent into exile. And Rabbi Shimon, there was a prize stack put on his head, and he was wanted to be executed. So Rabbi Shimon and his son hid in the Beit Midrash, and his wife would bring him food every day. And then, as the Romans were searching for him, he was concerned that his wife would be caught and tortured and would reveal his hiding place. So he and Rabbi Eleazar, his son, hid in a cave. They took off their clothes and they would dig their bodies into the sand and learn Torah the whole day. And there was a miracle. A carob tree grew by the cave and there was a spring of water that appeared. So they ate carobs and drank water and learned Torah the whole day. They would come out of of the sand to get dressed to pray and then put themselves back into the sand. And this is how they stayed for 12 years, every day learning Torah. It is said in the tradition that Eliyahu the prophet would come and learn with them. And this is how Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Eleazar learned the entire Kabbalistic tradition and all of the Zohar. After 12 years, Eliyahu came to let them know that the emperor passed away and that they're now in the clear. So they came out and they walked around and they were in shock that people were still going on with their normal lives planting and gathering crops and just going on with their lives and everywhere they would look would burn because they could not stand the mundane reality of this world after this great holiness. So God came out and told them, did you just come out of a cave to restore my world? Go back into the cave. And they spent another 12 months in the cave and after they came out, Rabbi Eliezer was still distraught that people would go on with their mundane lives instead of devoting their lives to holiness, but Rabbi Shimon told him, look, it's enough that the two of us are so connected to God. Let people live their lives. And then they met a man running home with two bouquets of myrtle branches, and they asked him, where are you going? He said, I'm running home because it's almost Shabbat. And they asked, what do you need the myrtle branches for? He said, for the honor of Shabbat to smell them. And they said to each other, look how Jewish people are connected to God's Torah, to God's mitzvot. And that calmed them down. And as we look at this story, I think what we can see are two ways that the Jewish people went ahead to deal with the exile of the past 2,000 years. Rabbi Huda had to see the good in the actions of the Romans. He had to look at the reality and find a redeeming quality because this was the only way the Jewish people could survive in the exile among the nations for the next 2,000 years. And he became, obviously through God's intervention, the chief speaker at every place because he would see the Jewish people and tell them, look, The situation is difficult. We're living under Roman rule, but we have to make the best we can with the situation. It's really an internal, inside look that goes beyond the veneer, just like Rabbi Akiva's wife, goes beyond the veneer of the unfortunate circumstances and tries to find the inner blessing, the redeeming quality of everything. And Rabbi Yehuda's, Teachings became the foundation of the Mishnah, the revealed Torah that has been guiding Jewish law for the past 2,000 years. Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai had a different approach. He did not look at the veneer and look for redeeming qualities. He looked for the inner meaning. What are the Romans really looking to do through all these quote unquote wonderful actions? And he had to go into hiding. He had to go underground, under the radar, into the cave, and the hidden teachings of the Torah were revealed to him. He wrote down the hidden teachings of the Torah so they would be preserved as the Jewish people were about to go into exile. And those hidden teachings have stayed under the radar in this proverbial cave for the past 2,000 years. They were passed from teacher to student, from teacher to student, from teacher to student, and they have been really hidden. This is how Kabbalah, Kabbalah really means something you get you, something that you receive, they were passed down. And it is only in this last few generations that Kabbalistic and Secret teachings are being coming out and being taught more in the open thanks to the Hasidic movement. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov in the introduction to his book Moharan, Quotes a saying from the Zohar that the Jewish people will leave the exile and be redeemed through the book of the Zohar. Because redemption is really all about seeing through the veneer of the world and seeing God and godliness in everything. In everything in the physical reality. And this is a very special internal look that sees the world as the secret. The secret hiding place of God. And it is only in the past two, three hundred years that these teachings have been coming out into the open and are now becoming more and more popularized through the Hasidic movement. So, as Rabbi Shimon's teachings are becoming more and more popular, and as we understand that through his teachings, we can get an internal, piercing look into the workings of the world, into the godly forces that lived every single part of existence as we're becoming more and more godly and closer and closer to the time of the redemption. More and more people join the celebrations around Rabbi Shimon and his amazing legacy, the legacy that stayed under the radar for 2,000 years in the belief that a day would come when it will come out and lead the Jewish people out of the exile. After the break, we'll hear about a modern Jewish leader that also had the wherewithal to stand up to a great power and win.
0: In a time where feelings have become fact, where rational thought and common sense has disappeared, one man stands above it all. I'm Howie Sobaker, your political hitman. Political hitman airs every Tuesday at 11.59 p.m. North American time, 7 a.m. Israeli time, only on Israel News Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back. So, I cannot end this episode without talking about last week's tragedy, Miron. When you think of a 500,000 people, strong crowd that comes together for a celebration like no other and ends with a huge tragedy, it was 45 people, children, sometimes siblings. Young people, older people, fathers, brothers, who c- went to celebrate and came back dead. You can't think of a greater tragedy. All the eyewitnesses shared that just moments before the tragedy, during a big bonfire being lit by the Tudot Aron um, Hasidic group, there was electricity in the air. There was singing and dancing and people saying Shema Israel." the central prayer of Judaism and it was just a very, very holy and exciting and amazing event. And then people leaving got stuck in a in a corridor. It's still not clear. I understand why that happened. What what was the mishap that happened there? Was it the police mistake? And in the crush forty five people passed away. And the question is why? Now, we obviously don't know why, and we don't have answers from God. God doesn't tell us His mind. But in this week's Torah portion, Bechukotay, there's a very clear principle set out. God is responsive to our actions. And we create our own relationship with God and our own relationship with the world and our own circumstances by our actions. It's not that if you're good, that God will give you rewards, and if you're bad, God will give you punishment. In the world, there are natural consequences and logical consequences. If somebody, God forbid, starts a fire and goes away, that fire will burn things down. If somebody opens a faucet and walks away, there's going to be a flood. If people are not mindful of their actions, then they create havoc. And when people are mindful of their actions, they create blessing. We firmly believe that when God created this world, he created it for a reason, for each person to play their unique role. God created this world based on rules, based on his will. and He communicated these rules and this will of his to us through the Torah. The Torah comes from the word hora'ah. Hora'ah means a teaching. And the laws of the Torah, the halacha, halacha comes from the word lehalech, to walk, are the ways in which we should walk in the teachings of God, not just because God wants us to do so, but because these laws are compatible with the laws of the world. Our sages say that the Torah predates the world And God looked into the Torah and created the world. That means that the world is compatible to the teachings of the Torah. And people who follow the teachings of the Torah live in the world based on the rules of the world. But when we do not follow the Torah, when we do what we please, when we disregard God, then we behave in ways that are compatible with the well-being of the world. And we create havoc, we create chaos. And then, in this week's Torah portion, we read the horrible consequences, what is called the curses, but it's not because God is cursing us. It's because we bring the curse upon ourselves when we disregard the way this world works. You said the natural consequences. Every parent knows that sometimes we let children suffer the natural consequences of their actions, because this is the only way for them to learn. For example, if a child doesn't study for a test and then they go to school and they take a test and they don't know and they fail the test, that's a natural consequence of their action. It's not a punishment if they don't set the alarm clock and they wake up late. That's a natural consequence. A logical consequence, on the other hand, is when we set a logical consequence that doesn't necessarily have to happen but it's a way for us to teach our children the consequence of their action. For example, if you hit your siblings, you will not be able to be in the public areas of the house and you'll have to go to your room. There's a logic between the punishment and the action, but it's not a natural outcome. But for, by God, there are natural outcomes if we do not follow the Torah. Now, as I said, we don't know why. Last year, it's like Baltimore ended with the tragedy that it did. But we do know that God runs the world on the principle of measure for measure. And understanding this issue of natural consequences leads us to understand that the outcome is connected to the reason. So if there's something that we as a nation, we as a people, we as a world are doing wrong, it's going to create a natural outcome. And it's very important to understand that the natural outcome is not just for the people who died. The people who died in the crash are not guilty, and by all accounts, they were very special individuals. So we're not talking about them being um, guilty of these things. This is not a a blame-a-victim kind of situation. But on the contrary, this crush, this outcome of 45 people coming back in bags is a sign for us that we're paying a natural consequence for a behavior that does not match the world and the rules of the world and the rules of the Torah. So what could it be? Why do people crash each other? Because there's a wave, there are too many people in too small of a place, and then what happens is that people fall over each other and crush each other. And don't let each other breathe. It's not something that is voluntary. It wasn't done on purpose because a crowd moves in a wave. But the outcome is that people crush each other. And I think that's a sign to us that as a society, we're in a space where people will very often step on each other in order to get to where they want to go. They're so focused on the outcome. They're so focused on where they want to go that they're not mindful of the people around them and the outcomes for the people around them. Instead of being a society where everybody wants to help each other, we're a society where every person is out there for themselves. This week I gave a talk at the Mandel Institute. It's an institute for leadership. And I asked the participants, many of them people with um, doctoral degrees, people, leaders in their fields, I showed them a tallit. A and I asked them if it would be ethical if somebody would cut up the tallit in the privacy of their own home and then wash the windows with it. Now, based on halacha, based on Torah law, that's unethical because the tallit has inherent holiness, which we have to respect. And the people moved uneasily in their chairs. They were talking about 20 thought leaders, teachers, journalists, people with PhD degrees. And they moved up comfortably in their seats and they said, if nobody gets hurt, then there's nothing wrong with it. Because really, holiness is in the eyes of the beholder. And every person decides what's holy for them. And then I tried to explain to them that if Every person decides what's holy or important for them, and then every person is out for themselves, and every person is out there to protect their own worldview. And then we come to a place where our whole society is built on rights, and my rights end at the end of your nose, but every person is basically focused on what they want, what their rights are, what's important for them. What is their principle of holiness? What is their priority? If I'm so set on what's important for me, then what's important for you is not really important. And if my rights trump your rights, well, I will fight for my rights. And that's a society where people crush each other because we do not have a common goal. We do not have a common mission. We do not have a common heritage. We do not have a common understanding of what it means to be holy or to be a nation, to be loyal to each other. And then we get crushed under the burden of our own outlooks while we go out to fight for our own rights. And that, I think, maybe, might be, that's my take on this. This might have been the reason or the mishap of what we have done wrong that has created the natural outcome of the tragedy of last year in which actually is very uh, compatible with the purpose of these days which we talked about earlier. The problem of the students of Rabbi Akiva was that they did not respect each other. They were so certain of their own rightness and righteousness that they did not give space for the thoughts and ideas of other people. And this is a takeaway for us to think about as we go into this Lag Omer tonight, as we light the bonfires, as we spend time with our children, as we join the Chabad marches. If there is such a thing in your community, check out. Almost every community in the world has a Chabad march for kids. It's a great experience. It's something for us to ponder. How do we create more space for other people, for our ideas, for other people's ideas? And how we create a common fabric of a society that is not focused just on rights, but is much more focused on what is expected of us? Thank you for being with me today. This has been News from the Torah for Lagba Omer, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye now.